It is important to understand experimental design, how the study was designed. That will usually tell us a lot about how the experiment was laid out and organized. And that will give us a lot of insight into the data generation process. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here, you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Minitube, the worldwide leading supplier of systems for the field of assisted animal reproduction. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Merck Animal Health, driven by prevention. Evonik, we are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Every pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Just all, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in a high quality, safe and sustainable way. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show. I am Laura Greiner, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsor highlight is about Gestal. Celebrating its 25th anniversary, Gestal manufactures the original wireless standalone swine feeding system designed by pork producers for pork producers. They are simple, reliable, and provide peace of mind 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. Gestal is not just manufactured by an equipment company, but by a family pork production business with a slat-level understanding. Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Swine It podcast. I am your host, Laura Greiner, and today I have Nora Bello from Kansas State University. Nora, how are you today? Hi, how are you, Laura? It's a pleasure to be here. Thank, thank you for, for the invitation. Yes, it's a pleasure to have you on today, Nora. Um, our audience may not be familiar with you, so would you mind giving us a brief introduction about uh, who you are and, and what you currently do? Sure. Well, uh, I'm currently a professor in the Department of Statistics at Kansas State University, like you mentioned. Um, I have a rather unusual background for a statistician, though. I'm actually a veterinarian by training and an animal scientist, and I have worked transdisciplinary most of my professional life uh, looking at uh, development of methodology and implementation of statistical methodology in the context of agriculture and biology and sometimes even the biomedical sciences. Okay, great. Well, I think this will be a really good conversation today as, as you and I were visiting ahead of time. There are a lot of questions that we always have when it comes to livestock research and, and study design. And so from your experience as a veterinarian and an animal scientist and a statistician, what do you think are some of the biggest mistakes we make when we do animal research? Well, that's a, that's a huge question, Laura, right? Um, and it's interesting. I, I have, I have for, for my first 
10, 12, 12 years uh, um, in, in academia, um, I, I have kind of developed a collection of uh, some of the most common issues that, that I have seen uh, uh, in animal research. And a couple of years ago, a colleague of mine and, and me uh, wrote a paper exactly about this. Uh, um, what are some of the most common mistakes? Uh, and we named it re reproducible research from noisy data, revisiting key statistical principles for the animal sciences. The paper is published in Journal of Dairy Science, uh, 2018, I believe it is. Um, it's open access, so anybody can actually uh, um, access it. This was a joint work with my colleague, David Renter from the vet school here at K-State. Um, and we were trying to get to what we what we saw as the most common issues. Um, now, to get to the question, to the actual question, um, pr probably one of the most common problems uh, that I see uh, uh, in, in, in animal research has, has to do with uh, translating the data generation process of any experiment or any study um, uh, into a statistical model. Um, and this basically has to do with how the statistical model is specified for analysis, how well aligned it is with the process that generated that data and therefore with the sources of variability in the data. Um, and therefore how well it reflects the architecture that the data has, the correlation patterns, the again, the way that the data was generated and the sources of noise in it. Um, and this has a lot to do with uh, how we specify our model. Co common in the animal sciences are models called mixed models or hierarchical models, which have to do with specification of uh, fixed effects and random effects, treatment uh, structures and design structures. How we specify those um, is, is one of the most common issues that, that I see in, in terms of how well it reflects, again, how the data was generated. I think that's a very good comment. Um, when you think about that, how do you account for some of that a variation? So we talk about fixed effects versus random effects. So how do we start to help people set up those designs? Good. So I think you just, uh, hit the, the, the point of the thread there, Laura. Um, it is important to understand experimental design, how the study was designed. That will usually tell us a lot about how the experiment was laid out and organized. And that will give us a lot of insight into the data generation process. Now, in addition to that, usually what happens is stuff happens as we are conducting the, the, the experiment many times things don't work out exactly like, like we plan them to be um, and we need to adapt on the go. Um, to accommodate this, uh, um, there are tools available to try to um, accommodate and understand the data generation process. So um, you may have heard about ANOVA shells which are not necessarily ANOVA tables, which of course have all the sums of squares, algebra attached to them. 
but actually shells that um, have uh, uh, look into basically the thought process that Ronald Fisher had in mind when first thinking about ANOVA, uh, the thought process without the algebra, um, and, and, and tries to separate and identify the elements of the treatment structure, basically the questions that we are asking, the elements of the design structure that have to do with how the experiment is organized and how they come together. Um, so ANOVA shells, they, they have been proposed uh, uh, from University of Nebraska outside of the ANOVA table, basically. Um, and they, they're sometimes called what would fishers do tables, trying to make reference to the thought process as opposed to the mechanics of um, ANOVA tables. These are tools that, that um, I, I teach in my courses. These are tools that I use on a day-to-day -day basis on my statistical consulting. I find them to be very, very useful to try to articulate and formalize the data generation process. Mm -hmm. Once you have that down, specifying um, um, a model is actually very, very simple. Um, but it's not something, it's not a, a, a trial and error thing. You really need to understand how the data was generated in order to have a feel for what a properly specified model needs to be. You mentioned that that was at the University of Nebraska. Is there a, a resource that people can go to to find those ANOVA shells? Oh, you bet. Um, work from uh, one of my colleagues, Walter Straub, at the Department of Statistics from University of Nebraska in Lincoln. Um, he's uh, put forth this thought process very nicely. There are a, a, a few papers that illustrate how, um, how to implement them. Um, what has worked mostly in uh, the plant sciences and agronomy and horticulture, um, I picked that up and, and translated it more into animal research. So some of my publications also have some, some, some material on how to implement these tools into animal research. I think that's great. Uh, well, hopefully our audience can find those resources and, and use it. I'll be interested myself in looking at that information and, and seeing how we can apply that into our statistics as they are today. Um, one of the other things that, that we tend to have a lot of discussion around with livestock research is this idea of experimental study design versus observational studies, um, particularly when we start thinking about animal mortality and having to have large numbers to really feel like we have a fair assessment of what's happening in our studies. Um, and so a lot of people wanna do the observational side of that because they can get the replication quickly without maybe having as, as strict of controls as we would set in an experimental study. So what do you feel are the pros and cons to doing either more of the controlled experiment versus the more observational type of study? Good, that's a, that's a great question, Laura. If we're going to look at designed experiments as opposed to observational study, it's important to understand what's at the core of the difference between these two very different types of studies. And what's at the core of this difference is the process of ra randomization, um, which is, is, is a formal mechanism of chance. Uh, it's not haphazard, it's, it's not whatever, it's not uh, whatever comes out, 
it's actually a formal process of chance that has to do with balancing out any systematic effects that might be lurking in pieces of the data that we may or may not be aware of. And this is particularly for, for uh, um, effects that we are not aware of, right? Subsets of animals that um, might end up in one treatment, uh, but it may be that what they have in common is not just that treatment, but something else lurking below the, the, the surface. By, by doing a formal process of randomization, we can actually balance out on average and kind of spread, have a greater chance of spreading that um, lurking whatever might be that's affecting our, our outcome across multiple treatments. The idea being that we avoid confounding effects. We avoid making a conclusion on a treatment when really what's driving whatever difference we're seeing is not the treatment itself, but something else that was common to the animals to start with. Hmm? A process of randomization gets us out of that confounding, at least on average. Um, so all of this uh, works in a probabilistic framework. Um, so uh, uh, on any particular re realization, you're not warranted for that to happen. Um, but certainly on average, in the long range, uh, um, that is what you're shooting for, averaging out any systematic effects so that you can then conclude on an effect of uh, uh, treatment in a designed experiment. Um, this is in contrast, of course, with observational studies, which um, where, where we don't have a chance to randomize or we, we cannot uh, uh, ra ra randomize either for ethical reasons, for operational reasons, um, randomization is just not an option. And in, that, in those cases, we need to realize that whatever association we are looking at could be mixed up with something else that's underlying, uh, um, that's, that's confounding, basically. Um, so this poses an important difference then between observational studies and, and randomized studies or experimental studies that have to do with how we word conclusions. So you are correct that many times it's easier to get a larger sample size, not necessarily replication, but a larger sample size with observational studies um, because it's operational data, right? It's data that are collecting regardless to make decisions on a daily basis. So the data is there, why not use it? Of course, there's a lot of value in that data. It's important to realize though, that it's not randomized data. And what this means is that we need to be aware that what we're looking at in that data is at most associations, relationships, without an understanding of directionality. We can't really assess cause and effect because of the potential of confounded effects, okay? Um, and because of that, our conclusions have been worded in this non-directional manner. We have a relationship between A and B. We have an association between A and B. That doesn't necessarily mean that A causes B. There could be other mechanisms that are, that, 
that are uh, um, uh, that that can explain that association. Um, so it becomes kind of a stepping stone in in research. There's a lot of value, like I mentioned, in operational data set in, in terms of trying to understand what what might be the relevant players. But if we are to conclude on cause and effect, impact of this on that, effect of C on D, the process of randomization is really the gold standard. Um, I will mention, though, there is a new area um, in statistics called causal inference that is looking at, in certain scenarios, under certain circumstances, look at correlation patterns that can only be explained by one set of causal mechanisms. So there are, there are some conditions, some cases under which we can make some level of causal inference from observational data set. That is a much more sophisticated type of approach. It does have its own assumptions, which is important to, to realize. None of this is foolproof, um, but there is a middle ground here. Uh, uh, there is some extra information that can be extracted from observational data, uh, and that is uh, very much an area of active research. I think that's a very interesting conversation. And one of the, the questions that I tend to get a lot is, okay, we're going to do a field study. We know it's observational. Um, we know we can't do a full experimental study, but let's just add a lot of barns to the study. So if we're doing swine research, we have multiple pig barns and we'll just keep adding barns. And then that observational study should eventually equate to a experimental study in terms of the output. Would you agree to that or, or do I, I understand the randomization and accounting for the variables, but it's it's still a conversation we hear a lot in the industry is let's just do these really large observational studies with 20, 30, 40 pig barns and, and then try to, of course, publish it because we feel like we've accounted for that randomization factor that we typically would do in an experimental study. Do you agree or disagree with that? Well, this is not, not really an issue of agreeing or disagreeing. This, this really has to do with the fact that uh, by increasing the sample size, you cannot really overcome here some, something that is inherent to the nature of the data. Uh, so no, it doesn't matter how, how many uh, uh, barns, how many farms, how, how many pigs you have, if, if, if the data is observational in nature, um, you just can never rule out the presence of confounding effects. Uh, and this is a case where you just don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is why it's, it's an issue of nature of the data as opposed to sample size. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very good point. One of the other questions that we always get, and, and certainly when I do sow research, um, we start thinking about blocking. Okay, so we understand that blocking helps account for variation and we recognize there's variation. And so when we start blocking, particularly in sow research, we, we first talk about parity, and then we start talking about maybe body condition, and then we maybe start talking about some other factor. And so you start to overlay 
lots of, of different blocks, which becomes extremely complicated and almost to the point that it, it feels unnecessary, but yet in your mind, you're thinking about controlling the variation and trying to help the data. So um, when we think about blocking, what are, what are your thoughts about blocking in, in livestock trials? Well, I, I, I realize that this is a controversial topic at the moment. Uh, I have got my fair share of questions. Um, so I think there are bits and pieces to this problem. It's, it's really hard to generalize. So blocking is a strategy to control noise. Okay, so starting from that, from that angle, blocking is extremely effective when there is noise that can be explained by the blocking factor. Okay, so, and the standard has to do with the amount of variability that happens between blocks versus the amount of variability that happens within blocks, right? What can we expect in terms of, of variation between blocks of animals? versus within. If the variability is greater between blocks of animals than within, so if animals are more similar to each other within a block uh, than between blocks, then uh, blocking is probably a very good strategy for controlling noise. Now, this is very different though from the idea of blocking by convenience. So many times in experiments, people block because this is how the experiment is organized. This is how uh, uh, animals are organized in pens. This is, this is how, how we function. So this is why we block. This, this blocking by convenience is actually more likely than not to be detrimental. Um, why? Because uh, organizing the logistics of the experiment may or may not have anything to do, more, more, more likely than, than, than not, does not have anything to do with controlling noise for the response variable that, that you are working on. Um, so, and if that's the case, you are introducing into the data generation process a factor that then will be aligned with a parameter in the model needs to be estimated that uses up from the data in that estimation process therefore it's up degrees of freedom and ends up hurting you because it doesn't control the noise that it promised to meanwhile eating up information eating up degrees of freedom okay so um always to say that there is a range right if there is noise to be controlled by blocking blocking can be extremely effective if we're blocking just because this is how we are organizing ourselves, chances are it's not gonna be a very effective strategy. Actually, it can hurt you. Um, that's one consideration. The next one, and I know this is fairly common to peak trials, Laura. Um, many times we think of blocking in the abstract as a general strategy, and truth is, Blocking can be useful for some response variables, but not necessarily for others. And many big trials are well known for looking at 25, 30 responses in one paper. Um, and blocking as a strategy may, may be meaningful for some of those responses versus not for others. So the decision as to whether to block or 
or not should probably be driven whatever are the main outcomes of interest in a paper realizing that the answer may differ for secondary or even third 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 level outcomes uh, um, in importance um, so it's not a yes no type question it's more of a pr priority type question there are there are other uh, um, pieces that go along with this. Um, you can argue that um, blocking is one strategy to control noise, but other strategies to control noise are there. And we know that, for example, covariate adjustment is another way to control for noise, right? And now we start to bring in another piece of the discussion that has to do with uh, if we're going to adjust for covariates, what type of functional relationship uh, can we expect uh, uh, between the covariate we're, we're adjusting for and the outcome? Is it a linear relationship? Is it a quadratic relationship? Is it a nonlinear type of relationship? All of these are considerations that will affect how well the strategy for controlling noise works. Um, so it's not a no black and white type answer. I can tell you though that this is a very easy uh, assessment to make. Uh, um, you can actually compute relative efficiency of blocking on any trial for any response variable and use that to decide how you're going to uh, uh, design your next experiment, right? So uh, um, this is, if you page through any textbook in uh, experimental design, there is an expression for uh, relative efficiency of blocking. Uh, and if you're doing nutrition trials or, or reproductive trials that usually have a pretty defined format, um, you can assess whether uh, um, for this type of general question, blocking might be an effective strategy or not. Um, so yes, there are some considerations to discuss and therefore, and, and then there's also the use of data from previous trials to try to make a more informed decision for your specific case. Um, and this is where people work together, right? This is where uh, you partner up with uh, uh, a statistician. This is where collaborations happen. Um, so it's it's a, it's there's a lot uh, uh, in general terms as well as as from from a specific standpoint. Very good. So the last question I have for you is about randomization. So we've talked about blocking and and accounting for variation, and and you did talk a little bit about randomization when we were talking about experimental versus observational studies, but can you help us understand why randomization is so important? Can you just go back and, and revisit that for a minute? Yes, of course, Laura. Well, like I just mentioned, um, what randomization is gonna do for us, and this is again on average, okay, is to try to balance out patterns or effects that are underlying in the data that we might not be aware of and distribute them more or less evenly across treatments, again, on average. Mm -hmm. Clearly, any ra randomization, any even ra randomization could very well end up 
with a um, with an assignment of animals to treatments that is not very balanced, but that's a very small chance in all the possible types of layouts, of permutation lay layouts that you can end up with for, for, for a randomization process. So the idea is that we balance out, that we even out those unknown systematic effects across treatments so that we avoid um, in, in, incorrectly assigning the effect of those systematic factors to, to uh, the treatments of interest. The idea being here that um, if the treatment that, that we are interested in has an effect on the response, we, we would expect that, that when we apply that treatment, we would be seeing that, that increase or that decrease in response, right? Um, but if it just so happens that what we're seeing is not effect of treatment, but a confounded effect of something else, um, meaning there's something else, another sy systematic effect that's underlying, um, then we might apply our treatment again and not get the expected results. So it becomes uh, an issue of re reproducibility of research results. It's, it's one of the safeguards, if I should say, randomization as one of the safeguards for um, enhancing the chances of reproducible research. I think that's a very good point. Uh, many times when I'd be picking up pigs from a litter, of course, just to randomly pick them up to weigh them, uh, taking a litter weight, but in my mind just going through, I'm just randomly picking them up. I notice that even inherently when I'm trying to make a very conscious process of randomizing and picking up, I still don't do it, right? It's it's human nature that we find patterns and so forth. So when we think about people who are in a barn um, trying to do a, a randomization, are there any easy tools that they can use? Um, like for example, I was always taught flip a coin or go to a phone book and, and read the numbers off the phone book. Do you have any suggestions like that that maybe our, our audience could use to help prevent that inherent nature of, of not being random? You bet, yes. So um, you laugh at this, but it's, it's, it's fairly common to print out just a list of random numbers. Go to Excel and print a list of random numbers. And when I mean random, again, I don't mean whatever. I don't mean haphazard. What I mean is chance, okay? Let, let chance work. Uh, uh, so if you go to Excel and what is it? I think it's the R, A, and D function in Excel that will give you ra random numbers. You can print a whole list of them and have them handy as one of the, the, the sheets that you take with you to the barn. Um, and there are different ways, depending on what you're trying to assign, right? Depending on how many treatments and, 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 and what the experiment uh, consists of, you can actually use that list of random numbers uh, um, to be for, for formally random, to do a randomization on the field, on your feet, in a formal manner. Um, there's, there's, that's one. Um, Another one that I, I liked to do, and I, and I did this a lot when I was a graduate student and I was assigning my cows to treatments, 
Um, I would come back from the barn and I would, oh, this was before going to the barn, where I would get a list of the cows that would be, that would enter study that week. And I would just cut pieces of paper with the names of the cows and I would go around my office mates and have them pull out pieces of paper. Okay, this, the first one goes to the first treatment, the second one to the second treatment. And you go around assigning treatments at random in that way. Uh, of course, again, there are considerations for blocking if you have multiple treatment factors. Um, so there are all sorts of of added on pieces to, to, to consider. But uh, those work just as fine as flipping a coin uh, and they can be handy even for pretty complex designs, particularly the list of random numbers that you can again ge generate in Excel. I think that's great. Yeah, I used a paper cup and pieces of paper a lot in the barns because that's all I had. I didn't have money with me in the, in the swine barn. So it, it works, right? Well, I, I do think those are Great pieces of information for our audience today, Nora. It is time to our famous three. Genesis is the largest independent producer of high health registered purebred swine in the globe, having over 80% of all registered purebred breeding stock in Canada. The Genesis genetic program uses genomic selection strategies focused on productivity, faster growth, efficiency, high yield, and meat quality. To know more, go to genesis.com. G-E-N-E-S-U-S dot -E -E com. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. As we kind of wrap up as we normally do in our podcast, we, Marcio always likes to have a few questions um, that all of our speakers get to answer. And the first question that he asks is, what is your favorite swine resource book? Oh, swine resource book. You got to remember, I am not a swine person, so I cannot talk about uh, um, swine, swine research. Um, I can tell you what are some of my favorite statistics books, applied statistics books. That would be great. <laughs> I think our audience would be equally interested at this point. So, yes. <laughs> Well, there are there are a bunch really. Um, there are some really really insightful uh, textbooks um, and 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 thought provoking books. So on the textbook side, gosh, there are a bunch on on mixed models that have come out in recent years. Um, some from SAS, some from um, again my 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 colleague Walt Straub, uh, looking at GLMMs, generalized linear mixed models. Also um, the NCCC 170 uh, uh, research advances in agricultural statistics has has some some books on mixed models, uh, modern mixed models for uh, um, the agricultural sciences. And then uh, it's maybe because I am I am teaching a, a Bayesian course this semester, but I've I've been kind of catching up on some of the resources available for Bayesian courses, um, and I I really like uh, the book by Ron Christensen and and Wesley Johnson on Bayesian ideas, very applied, very witty, very creative. Uh, on how to address problems. Uh, I, I get a lot of ideas from them. The same one from Brian Raich from North Carolina, um, and even from uh, um, my, my colleague at K-State, 
Trevor Hefley, uh, who have just come out come out with uh, with a new textbook on on Bayesian statistics. So, gosh, there's there's a lot, and of course, then um, ideas that make you think, kind of lay uh, um, lay books that are heavy on the quantitative questions. They don't have a single for formula to them, but they certainly present ideas in quantitative terms. Uh, the signal and, and, and the noise uh, from Nate Silver. Um, and there are quite, quite a few, uh, very creative, very, I said, very witty in terms of how they present problems, how they align them with uh, um, formal thought processes and how they go about providing an answer. Mm -hmm. Very good. I'll have to check out a few of those resources. I don't have them on my shelf yet, so I will definitely take a look. Um, when you think about other books that, that are not swine related or statistics related, are there any books that you would recommend to the audience that you really enjoy? I read many, many different things. Uh, and I wouldn't presume my interests to be shared um, by many others. Uh, um, I, I personally like to learn history about the places where I live and the places uh, where, where I travel. Um, I live in Kansas, uh, and it's actually Ma Manhattan, Kansas, where I'm at, is um, on the crossroads of some of the major trails to the West during the 1800s. Um, the Oregon Trail, the California Trail, the Santa Fe Trail. Um, so I've done a lot of reading uh, on, on this uh, trails, the Pioneer Trail, the trade trail that the, that the Santa Fe Trail was. Um, I really like first accounts, people telling the story as it happened to them. Uh, I'm really not much into novels. Um, I, I, I believe that reality has a way of uh, going, being much more fantastic than fiction. Um, but those are just, just my, my interests, Laura. No, that's, that's very good. I would agree. Um, I've recently been listening to an individual whose, whose life story really could have been a movie or a novel set in a fiction era. And it's so fascinating. So I, I certainly agree that real life can be just as interesting as any fictional piece of, of uh, work as well. Um, my last question for you is when you think about someone who is successful in your profession, what do you think are some key traits that help them become successful? Great, that's a, that's a great question. Um, Gosh, uh, what do you call successful, right? Uh, what is what is what does success come down to? And I can assure you that will look very different for different people. Um, from where I stand, I think what I consider success: standards of excellence, uh, rigorous standards of excellence that are upheld across the board is probably one of the main features of success, doing things right. Um, it's seldom the easy thing to do. It's, it's I don't know, it's the only way in which um, I personally can sleep at night. Uh, so uh, um, yeah, standards of excellence, basically shooting for the stars and doing the best uh, uh, 
the best that you can. I think it's a, it's a key to success. Absolutely. Well, I do appreciate your time today. As we wrap up today, Nora, are there any key takeaway points that you would like our audience to remember from our conversation today? Thank you, Laura. I realize that the audience that you have is pretty diverse. So what, I, what I'm going to say may or may not uh, resonate uh, um, with, the, with the full audience. But as a researcher, as a, as a statistical consultant, as a um, as an academic that hopefully has feet on the ground uh, um, as, a, as a veterinarian and an animal scientist. Um, I, I do think that the more complex the questions that we are faced with as we, as we move forward, right, the more complex the challenges about food supply and about um, climate change and about uh, uh, efficient use, use of resources. Um, there's a common thread behind all of this that has to do with achieving optimums, with subtleties. Things are not black and white. There is a lot of middle ground, there are a lot of gray areas. And I, I think that the only way to tease those out is on a quantitative foundation. So quantitative literacy, whichever way um, conceived to be, I think it's absolutely critical to many of the questions that we are asking, to much of the work that we do. And quantitative li li literacy doesn't really stop on the courses taken uh, during college or taken uh, um, during graduate school. There is a need to keep up. Uh, uh, statistics as a discipline is as vibrant and, and as active as any other discipline uh, um, in the in the world. So uh, things have changed a lot, even in the past 10, 10 years since I left grad school. Um, so it is important to keep up. It is important to learn about new tools, new new frameworks, new 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 way of thinking about problems, new ways of uh, framing them, uh, um, new new algorithms, new mechanisms. And I realize that this may be way out of the comfort zone of many people. And this is exactly what brings us together in a collaborative way. This is why interdisciplinary science is, I personally believe, the only way to go move, moving forward so that everybody can, give, can bring their expertise to the table. Um, it, I, I, I believe this piece about quantitative li literacy, even either acquired or, or, or collaborated with, uh, that comes in is, a, is going to be a critical piece of how we do science moving forward. Um, so I would encourage um, those that have access to updates to uh, um, take them, and those that do not seek out the, the, the experts in the field because they are out there and um, very willing to help. I think that's a wonderful take-home message, the, the lifelong learning message and, and staying active in our discipline and, and continuing to reach out and expand our, our knowledge is a, a perfect uh, takeaway message from today. So again, to our audience, this is Nora Bello from Kansas State University in the Statistics Department. And again, Nora, we do thank you for your time today. Uh, we wish you all the best. Please take care. Thank you, Laura. It's been a pleasure. 
imagine if with a few key concepts you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact by bringing from hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of swine nutrition on this seven-week-long elite online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding. It's conducted by myself, Dr. Marcio Gonçalves, and my world-class invited speakers. Additionally, you enjoy an exclusive community to exchange ideas. Go now to www.eliteswinenutritionist.com.